0: would open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 as we continue moving through this great book, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just by way of a show of hand, how many of you have had the opportunity to work with some kind of blueprint of some kind? Several, a few of us have. Now that could be a number of things, you know, sometimes we think of blueprints in terms of like structures, like buildings and such. But blueprints can also apply to uh, just items of different kinds. It could be like a birdhouse or it could be a Legos. Yeah, in a way it could be. Uh, I've never thought about the Lego instructions as blueprints, but I suppose they could fit in that category. Um, yeah, they... they 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 describe how to to the the, the dimensions, all the important details. Right, a, a blueprint is a design. It's a it's a pattern. It's a plan that, if followed, if you follow the blueprint, it gives you the desired results. So whether that's a house or a parking garage or a car or a, a Lego sewing. creation, a sewing pattern. There you go. A sewing pattern fits into that category. Whatever you follow the blueprint as it's as it's designed, you end up with the the desired results. Of course, now there's an aspect where, you know, just as we, you know, assuming that the blueprints are accurate, I've actually worked with blueprints that were inaccurate and had to be adjusted on the fly, but let's, we're just going to operate on the assumption that the blueprints are accurate, right? Assuming you have accurate blueprints, what happens when someone deviates from the blueprint? Not good things, right? Frustration. Frustration might be the least of the issues that could arise, right? Uh, I I, I have worked on jobs uh, downtown Louisville where uh, the framers deviated from the blueprint with a couple of things. And when you're building a multi-story building, when your mess up is at the bottom, it messes everything else up from there on up. Like, it just, it just ruins the whole thing. The results can be disastrous. Depending on the deviation, you could have an unstable structure, you could have a non-functioning machine, or you could have just something that just looks all wrong. It is critical that blueprints be followed to produce the desired results. Well, today we're going to be looking at what I believe we could say is Jesus' design for discipleship. He sets forth a blueprint, and I think He wants us to follow that pattern. We are in Mark chapter 3, and I'm going to go ahead and read our text beginning with verse 13. Mark chapter 3, beginning with verse 13. And He went up on the mountain and called to Him those who He desired, and they came to Him. And He appointed twelve, whom He also named apostles, so that they might be with Him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerjus, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. We have just come out of a section where we see various groups rejecting Jesus Christ on different levels. We have seen the religious leaders, they outright reject Jesus Christ. The crowds seem to accept Him, but it appears to be more of a surface-level acceptance. And so, as we discussed last week, a surface-level acceptance is really a rejection of Christ. As we move into our passage this morning, we're going to see... More contrasts with that. The crowd just wants Jesus for what he can do instead of Jesus himself. Here, Jesus calls 12 men to be his disciples. He does not give himself to the crowds, but rather he selects 12 men to be with him. And as we look at this today, I think we have over here a very important model. Jesus calls and commissions 12 men to do specific work, and that work is something that, that does translate us, does translate down to us today. It's not going to look exactly like what these 12 men did in this text. but it's a pattern for us. It's the blueprint for us that I do believe has application for us today. Here Jesus calls 12 men and says He also names them to be His apostles. Now we do not believe that there are apostles today. Right, there are no apostles today. That office was limited to the first century. These men were to serve as the blueprint for what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ. But the office of apostleship itself laid a foundation. And the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets as Ephesians, Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2. But the things that Jesus commissioned the apostles to do on a broad level... They were to pass those same things on to their followers, to those who they would disciple. And they were to be passed on and passed on just like we talked about this morning, the concept of discipleship and generational discipleship. They were to be passed on, who were to pass it on to others, who would be passed it on to others as well and so forth. And if you think about it, we are the fruit today of the apostles carrying out the mission that Jesus gave them to do. We have been discipled by disciples of disciples of disciples of disciples of disciples of Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thing. And now, here we are, here in the year 2023, and we stand in the, in the stream of, of all of these who have gone before us, and we have the amazing opportunity to carry that forward and to lead others to Jesus Christ and disciple them as well. And so we have this blueprint that's been given that has been followed all along this way and now all we must do is follow the same blueprints. And before we get to that blueprint, I just there's a few observations about this text that I want to make that I hope would be encouraging for us as we consider the particulars of the blueprint. First notice that Jesus is the one making the selection here. These, these crowds, they're following Jesus wherever he goes but Jesus selects 12 men to form his inner circle and while it might not be all that's surprising to us to see that Jesus is doing this because we've seen Him act in this way earlier in the book of Mark. What is surprising is the men who He selected to be that core. There's no Pharisees in this group. There's no scribes here. There's no. There's no not a single person from the dominant religious community. No members of the Sanhedrin, no rabbis selects people like Peter, the common fisherman, who is consistently painted in less than flattering light throughout this gospel. We've got James and John, the sons of thunder, which is a nickname that probably refers to their boisterous personalities. We've got James and John making, later on we're going to see James and John making a presumptuous request to Jesus. Lord, grant that we may sit on your right hand and your left in your kingdom. Whoa, who are you to ask that? Well, these are sons of thunder, don't you know? We find that Matthew a hated a tax collector. He's viewed as a sellout and a traitor to the Jewish people since he worked for the Romans. Simon, a zealot. A zealot is someone who belongs to a subversive political party that wants to overthrow the Roman government. He's a saboteur. Can you, just, can you just imagine for a moment Matthew and Simon being in the same room together? Matthew, the Roman, working for the Romans as a tax collector, and Simon the Zealot, whose goal is to undermine the Roman government. Talk about, uh, we got sons of, sons of Thunder, well, there's the lightning, I guess. And then you have Judas, of course, who is eventually going to abandon and betray Jesus Christ. And then there's a handful of individuals that we know absolutely nothing about. Their name's in a list but we don't know what happened to them in the pages of Scripture. So it's hardly a collection of super saints, right? This is, this is a ragtag group of individuals. They're going to carry out Jesus' purposes and be an extension of His ministry. And they're just normal people that Jesus has called out and given them new purpose for their life. And I hope that's an encouragement to us. God can work through these men, this ragtag group of individuals, then surely there's hope for people like you and people like me. This blueprint wasn't made based on some outstanding individuals, right? Like, as if it's just like, well, this is the blueprint, and it's based on, you know, the most perfect super saint that ever. And if you don't live up to that, well, tough, you know, tough luck. No, it, it's this blueprint was given, and it was given with individuals that we can empathize with. Right? These, we look in the pages of Scripture, we see how they're described. It's like, man, I wish I didn't, but I see myself in Peter, right? So where we see these sorts of things going on. This blueprint was made with people like us in mind. Second, I like how it says here that Jesus appointed twelve men, or depending on your translation, it might say He ordained twelve men. And the word there for to appoint or to ordain is, we could literally translate it as to make or to create. So we could say Jesus made twelve men to be His apostles. This is significant because it shows us, even as we've been learning through the early pages of the book, that Jesus took men who weren't something and He made them to be something. He did something new with them. There's a quote from uh, one commentator who wrote this. Discipleship does not consist of what disciples can do for Jesus, as if it's all up to us. But rather it's in what Christ can make of his disciples. I've referenced this passage several times in the early portions of as we've gone through, cross-reference this passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Jesus made something new when he's calling out these men to be his apostles, just like he makes us into something new when we come to faith in him as well. And maybe you've heard this saying before, sometimes it can, maybe it's a little bit trite, but I think there's truth to it. And Jesus doesn't call the qualified, but He qualifies the called. Right? This is the work that Jesus does. He, he doesn't take outstanding individuals and say, oh, look at you, you're such a great person. I'm going to use you for my kingdom. No, He takes sinners, He saves them, and He equips them for the task which He sets before them. And again, this should encourage us. Because I don't know about you, but we feel inadequate for the task sometimes. Like, how are we to do this? Who is sufficient for these things? And we can rejoice with the words of Paul as Paul himself expressed that same sentiment. Who is sufficient for these things? He says, praise God, our sufficiency is in Jesus Christ. Jesus consistently works through inadequate people so that it is evident that it is Jesus doing the work and not mere humans. So that's just a little background, a few observations to set the stage for us. What then is the blueprint? What is it that Jesus wants from His disciples? Here it is. Two things and then two sub-things off the second thing. He calls them and appoints them to be with him and then to be sent for specific purposes to proclaim and to serve. It's not rocket science. It's not complicated. It's actually very simple. This is the model that Jesus sets up, and it's not a model based on model men but based on the model leader, Jesus Christ. Those who follow Him are to be with Him and then are to be sent out to do His work. So let's begin looking at the components of this blueprint. First, to be with Jesus. When Jesus called these men to be His apostles, the first and foremost, it was a call to be with Him. This is what we have in the text. He appointed the twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with Him. Him. It's easy to gloss over that, but it is a very significant concept found right there. The terminology of being with Jesus, it should cause us to think immediately in discipleship terms, being with the Master, following the Master. It really ought to make us also take a step back and realize that discipleship is, is not just about a task, but it's really about a relationship with the Master. Right, So the, the same commentary that I referenced earlier, he also wrote this, that the discipleship is a relationship before it's a task. It is a who before a what. It's from the pillar New Testament commentary. Right? So Jesus wasn't just looking for a group of guys just to be in his, like to be a fan club or to be his groupies. Just some bros to hang out with. No, he was calling them to live their lives with him, to learn from him, so that they would emulate his way of life. They were to go with him wherever he went, to do whatever he did, to experience whatever he experienced. This meant seeing some incredible things. Blind eyes open, deaf ears unstopped, mute tongues speaking, lepers healed, demons driven out, storms quelled, food multiplied, and so much more but also has been experiencing all the hardships with Jesus as well. They too were ridiculed, harassed, and ultimately they suffered greatly for the sake of Jesus Christ. But they were with their Lord. Being with Jesus lives an unmistakable mark. Later on, In chapter 14, we're going to see that Peter was recognized as having been with Jesus, but he's going to deny it. And seeing Peter warming himself, this is uh, after Jesus has been arrested and Peter is warming himself by the fire. There's that servant girl. She looks at him and says, oh, you also were with Jesus. She could tell. She recognized him, but this was an individual who spent a lot of time with Jesus. Later in the book of Acts, Peter and John were recognized as having been with Jesus. Acts chapter 4 verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. These are not educated people. But it says they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They had been with Jesus. The more time that is spent with Jesus, the more recognizable that mark becomes. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To some, we are an aroma of death leading to death, but to others, an aroma of life leading to life. When we're with Jesus, we start smelling like him. We begin to smell like Jesus. To some, that is an aroma of life to life. To others who reject the gospel, it is an aroma, a fragrance of death to death. But this is what being with Jesus does it leaves that unmistakable mark on us that is like a fragrance that people can just tell, They they can just sniff it out. To some, that's pleasing. Like, oh wow! Like, oh, have you ever had that where you're where you're uh, interacting with a complete and total stranger, and just just the way they're carrying themselves? It's not just their personality. It's not just not just the way they're acting. But it's just like you know, this. It seems like this person's a believer, and then you talk with them and find out that they are. They're a believer in Jesus Christ. I, I, I've experienced that. There's an aroma of life to life. To others, it leads to death because they reject the source of that fragrance, Jesus Christ, and thus the aroma, the fragrance, is repugnant to them. But it comes from being with Jesus. Jesus is the teacher. He, he instructs us on how to live. He is, he is the king. He has authority over us. He is wisdom personified. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and he will willingly impart those treasures to us if we are willing to invest the time necessary if we are willing to be with Him. Jesus called the disciples to be with Him and they spent three years following Him around the countryside, physically by His side during His earthly ministry. And this pattern holds true for us today. Jesus calls us to be with Him as well. Now, the question that, of course, comes is, well, what does that look like? We can't be with Jesus. Jesus isn't physically present with us, right? So we can't follow Him around like the disciples did, like the apostles did. We can't walk the streets with Him and hold face-to-face conversations with Him. But there are, of course, other ways that we can spend time with Jesus, right? And I know that we know what those ways are. We do so through the Word, and through prayer, we meet with Jesus every time we study His Word, and that can be in private. When we're reading His Word, we're going through maybe going through a Bible reading plan, or even just just opening up the Scriptures and studying it on depth, or however you engage the Word in private. When we gather to hear the Word preached in public, we are meeting with Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit takes His Word and applies it to our hearts and conforms us and shapes us to be more like Jesus Christ. The meeting with Jesus. Do you want to be like Jesus? Do you want to be conformed to his image? Do you want to be the aroma of Christ to the world? We must get into the Word. We must spend time with him. We must be with Jesus. We spend time with him through the word, but also through prayer. We we commune with him, we share our hearts with him. He molds us and shapes us even through our time of prayer. And then we get to see him use our prayers to accomplish his purposes. Jesus calls his disciples to spend time with him. And this is this is really this is the first aspect of the blueprint. And it is, it is really the all the rest of the blueprint hinges upon that. But if we're not doing this, if we're not spending time with Jesus, if we're not in His Word, if we're not spending our time in prayer, we're deviating from the blueprint. We're departing from, from the plan which God has given, for which Jesus has said, this is how you can be my disciples. And if we're deviating from the blueprint, we are either not His disciples or else we are poor ones. And in either case, that should bother us. We don't want to deviate from God's blueprints for who and what He wants His disciples to be. Now maybe you're here today and you do spend time studying the Scriptures and in prayer. And if that's the case, praise God, I'm glad, glad to hear that. What we need to recognize is that spending time with Jesus and spending time in the Scriptures is not to be an end in itself. It is good, it is necessary, and we are nursed and we are strengthened through that process, but it's not to be an end in itself. Jesus calls us to spend time with Him so that then we would be equipped to extend the ministry of Jesus to others as well. And that is the next component of the blueprints. He says, He appointed the twelve that they might be with Him. And the latter portion of verse 14 says, And He might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. So He appointed the twelve to be with Him, and He appointed them to be sent. We were never called to be Jesus' disciples so that we could keep to ourselves this message of Christ. Right, Christ called us in in order to send us out. Jesus' desires for the nations to trust Him, and we are instruments through which that will happen. So disciples, we spend time with Jesus, and then we go out into the world to do two things. To proclaim Him and to serve. So we have the two sub-aspects of being sent. We are to be sent to proclaim. This is the first purpose of the sending. It is a purpose clause in the original text then. He said uh, that He might send them out to preach for the purpose of preaching. Jesus didn't send the disciples out so they could just do whatever they felt like doing. They had a purpose, they had a mission, they had a task. That was to proclaim the good news. Something I'd like to note about that word to preach, and of course up on the screen I have the word to proclaim, and that is an intentional thing. The word to preach does simply mean to proclaim, to herald, to announce, or to publish. Sometimes we hear that word preach, and we can think in the context of like what I'm doing right now. I'm standing behind a podium of some kind. I'm, I'm preaching the word, right? It, it brings to mind a particular context. Well, sometimes that is exactly what preaching means. But if we were to trace through the scriptures where the word preach is used, we would find that there's a variety of contexts in which that language is used. Sometimes the context does imply this kind of preaching context, but sometimes the context is other things. If we look up that word for preach, we would find that everywhere that it is used throughout the New Testament, in almost every instance it's used in connection with the communication of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are texts where it speaks of like expositing and preaching the word. We find that particularly in 2 Timothy chapter 4. But more often we find it in gospel proclamation context of individuals communicating the gospel of Christ. So this concept is about proclamation of the gospel and that proclamation can take place in a variety of contexts. Sometimes that's a public preaching. Sometimes it's a a private communication on an individual level. Jesus' blueprint for discipleship not only has his disciples spending time with him and learning from him, but it necessarily involves us going out and sharing the things that we have learned with others. You may have heard this illustration before, but in the land of Galilee, there are two seas. Two seas in the land, or I said in, in the land of Israel, there are two seas. The first is the Sea of Galilee, that's up north. And the second is the Dead Sea. What's interesting is that both seas are fed by the same body of water. The Sea of Galilee, it is teeming with life. There are 27 different species of fish. There is vibrant colors, lush shores with lots of vegetation. The Dead Sea, on the other hand, has no fish whatsoever. It does not support any animal life. There's no plant life. There's no human life that is supported through the Dead Sea. The water is considered toxic to drink. But both of these seas are, again, they're fed by the same river. The Jordan River flows into both. Why are they so different? The difference is this. The Sea of Galilee has both an input and an output. The Jordan River flows in and the Jordan River flows out. And so the water cycles through that way. It keeps the water fresh and and provides rich it provides for the rich environment for the vibrant life. The Dead Sea on the other hand has it has the input, the Jordan River flows in, but it has no output. The water flows in and it sits and it stagnates the water stagnates and eventually evaporates and leaves behind that high concentration of salt and minerals. If we have our times of input through hearing the Word of God, through studying the Word of God, and spending time with Jesus, but then we never go out and we never share that truth with others, we will end up being more like the Dead Sea than the Sea of Galilee. We will stagnate in our faith. The input eventually evaporates and it isn't put to good use. But if we receive from the Lord, if we receive through spending time with Jesus and we receive truth from His Word and then then we give, we go out and, and we proclaim that message to others and we teach and communicate that message with others, that's where there's life. Individuals who have both the input and the output see the greatest amount of growth within their Christian lives. And when it comes to a life of discipleship, in reality this this makes sense, right? Being a disciple means we follow after the teacher, learning to think how he thinks so we can speak how he speaks. And when a rabbi teaches a learner, he did not expect that learner to just hang out with the rabbi forever, He was teaching him so that that individual could then go out and teach others. Discipleship implies not just learning, but that we will also then teach others the same information. We spend time with Jesus so that we can go out and teach others also. Now we can be tempted to sit and think like, okay, yeah, but I don't know enough. I'm not eloquent enough. I I I have I still have too much to learn. Yup. That is true. You're right. You don't know enough. You aren't eloquent enough. You do have more to learn. We want something else. I don't know enough. I'm not eloquent enough. I have more to learn, right? We we all do. We're all in this discipleship process together. We're all learning and growing it together. But remember. Who Jesus called out for his initial crop of people. Not the super saints, right? It wasn't this amazing all-star cast. Jesus has to continually correct their understanding of his teachings. And we're going to see this as we get into some of the parables. Like even the disciples, they're like, "Uh, can you explain that one to us? We're not getting it. Jesus is just like, come on, guys. You're the ones that are supposed to understand this stuff, (laughs) Right? He's got to teach them. They got. They got to learn. Well, that's us, right? We got to learn. Like we're in that process together. And yet, that doesn't stop Jesus from sending out the disciples even before they have perfect understanding of everything that Jesus had to teach them. So we start with what we know. Right, well, you don't have to go out and expect to give a detailed systematic theology of all the doctrine that's in the Bible. You start with what you know. You can start with your own testimony about what God has done for you. It's an excellent place to start. And then ask questions. If people ask questions and you can give answers according to what you know and the things that you don't know, we can say, okay, let me learn more and get back with you. But this is part of the process of discipleship. We are sent out to proclaim his disciples, they did proclaim, but that's not all they did. They were also to serve others. They were sent to proclaim, they were sent to serve. He appointed the twelve so that they might be with Him, that He might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. All right, I hope you're all ready. You ready to cast out some demons? Ready to do some exorcisms? Okay, let a few things for us to understand what I believe is going on in this text is what is called a synecdoche. A synecdoche. A synecdoche is when it's a, fig, it's a literary device for when a part of something is substituted for the whole. So think of this as, uh, have you ever used or heard the phrase, oh, uh, we had some hired hands that came in and helped us? The hired hands. Are we talking about just hands? That are coming in that, that have severed from the body? No. What would you say? Like cousin. like cousin it, yeah, right. That's not what we're doing, right? It's it's a it's a literary device where we're referring to the part of something, but it actually represents the whole person. Similarly, when the text says here to cast out demons, I believe that's what's going on here, it's a part of the whole of the ministry which would have included Things like casting out demons, things like healing the sick, and many other acts of of mercy in the midst of the ministry there. And we can reasonably conclude that because as we read forward in the Gospel of Mark, we would find, what are the disciples doing? What's it described that they're doing? And they are doing the same things that Jesus is doing. It's not just casting out demons. There's other things. They're healing the sick. They're caring for people's needs. They're doing these other things... And so, this concept of casting out demons in this text is a literary device that refers to the whole of the mercy ministry that they were sent out to do as they continued to follow Jesus. Jesus preached, Jesus healed, Jesus drove out demons. Now, the disciples were to do the same. They were to preach, they were to drive out demons, and they were to heal. All part of the discipleship blueprint. You now again, as we kind of think of, of where we stand here today and we think of, okay, that's what the disciples did then, but here we are today, uh, okay, proclaiming the message of the gospel of Christ, teaching others the things that we have heard and learned. Well, that's doable, right? We can do those things. Makes sense. What are we to do about the miracles? How are we to think about those things? You know, a part of our doctoral statement here at Pillar Fellowship, there's a there's a section on that that deals with the concept of cessationism, right? We believe that the sign gifts have ceased. So, what do we do with this aspect of the of the blueprint? If this is what the disciples were to do, how do we understand this? Well, though we may rightly conclude that we have not been granted authority to perform these same. Miracles and cast out demons and things of that nature. I do believe that we are called to emulate Jesus and follow His example. And the signs and the miracles, they're no longer necessary. We believe that those functioned as, as uh, verifications of the message to authenticate the message that was being proclaimed. Well, that message has been authenticated. It's been done. We have the sure word of God before us. we can still have compassion on those around us. We can still serve others in other ways just as Christ served others. It will look different because we can't lay our hands and heal individuals. We can pray for healing and God may grant that prayer but we aren't miracle workers going about and doing that all the time, right? but we can still love, care, and serve those around us. And not only can we do those things, but we must do those things. One of the core values that we looked at this morning in our membership class was that of others-oriented service, that we selflessly serve others as an expression of the love of Christ. And if we were to look at, Ma- at Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that the Son of Man did not come to to uh, He did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve, and if we are His disciples, if we're to follow the Master, we too will be engaged in service to others. Again, that can take place in a variety of ways. But Jesus is the one who specifically set up this part of the blueprint for discipleship. And who are we to deviate from that? This morning we talked through multiple core values in our Sunday school time, our, our membership class. The last two weeks, really, this sound Bible teaching, theocentric worship, fervent prayer. It's being with Jesus. We talked about gospel driven outreach, sent out to proclaim, others oriented service, sent out to serve. These are, these are essential components to true discipleship. They're baked into really the core values of our church because these are the, what the pages of Scripture reveal to us should be our priorities. And they are part of this blueprint of, of true discipleship. So if we want to follow Jesus, if we want to be more like Him, if we want to be conformed unto His image, then this is the blueprints that we need to follow. And it may not look the same from one person to the next, but all the elements need to be there. And if we're leaving something out, we're deviating from the blueprint, and that can lead to disastrous results within our own lives And we run the risk of being a dead sea disciple stagnates in our faith. So spend time with Jesus. Drink in the the milk of the Word of God. Dine upon the meat of the Word of God. But then don't just sit with it communicate that to others proclaim it to others proclaim the gospel proclaim the other things that you've learned even as we're helping one another follow Jesus we can we can say hey I was reading the scriptures this day and you know I think that applies to your situation over here that's all part of it and then we serve one another as an expression of the love of Christ following the blueprint of discipleship let's pray Father, we thank You for Jesus Christ. We thank You for how He invested in, in these men at this day, uh, at this section of of the Word of God here, it's describing the calling of the disciples and sending them out. Well, I thank You that they were faithful to follow after that, that they carried out the mission for which they were commissioned to do. And we are the fruit of that here today. I pray, Lord, that... There would be many who would come to faith in Christ as a result of our ministry, Lord, as a result of our efforts, not because it's us who's doing it, but you working in us and through us. May we be careful to give you the honor, the praise, and the glory for everything that you are and everything that you are doing. To God be the glory, great things he has done. That is our song, that is our message. May we praise you all of our days.